Well, good afternoon. I think we're close to starting time. March the 3rd. No, May the 3rd. I just want to see if you're listening. Well, yesterday we started by looking at the beginning of the lectures in 1943 and going to 82. Now we pick up with 1983 and go through 97. So we're going to cover 15 years today. And um, people will wander in for a moment. Come on in. This went back to Mike Cope saying, would you put together a three-day class on the 75-year history? And I said, okay, I'll do it, but I don't want to do the years when I was director. So I did yesterday all the way up to 82. But then uh, I asked Rubel Shelley and Rick Gibson to help me fill out the presentation. And so Rubel is today and Rick is tomorrow. Come on in, there's still seats. The reason um, I felt like the two people that could do what is going to be done today, 83 to 97, were either Rubel Shelley or Lynn Anderson because they were they keynoted on open, on the first week that I t did in 83. Rubel did four keynotes in those 15 years, and he had a three-day class every week, and Lynn the same way. But Lynn's not as in good a health as Rubel. Rubel is at 100%. And uh, I don't think Lynn was able to come. So we'll have Rubel today, Rick tomorrow. This is going to be a delight for me. So let's welcome back to Pepperdine, Rubel Shelley. Don't go anywhere. 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 <laughs> I told Jerry yesterday when he was asking what each of us was going to do on following days, I answered, and I think some of you thought just sort of smart alecky off the cuff. I don't know. I didn't have any idea what I was going to do today. I was going to listen to Jerry and see what Jerry did yesterday and say, well, I'm going to sort of go down the channel that he floats. And I'm glad you did it by way of, of personal recollection, reminisce, recalling important events, noteworthy events that were important to you because that's about the only way I know to go with this. Jerry has the, the institutional background of, of the lectures were and the lectures became and this conversation with Dr. White and this with Bill and whatever. I don't have any of that. I think the perspective that I have on the Pepperdine lectures is more nearly the perspective that I'll bet a number of you have. The Pepperdine lectures were not for me an administrative opportunity challenge, delight. They were very much for me um, respite. They were for me the opportunity to be challenged, to think in ways that I had not been trained to think. And Pepperdine uh, for me personally um, it became a safe place. And so I like this term harbor. Um, it, it became a safe place where you could come and not only hear ideas that might challenge you, but Jerry, for, for reasons, and that's where I want to start just a moment, for reasons I will never know, um, trusted me, gave me podium, gave me, gave me keynote uh, speaking opportunities that um, I didn't deserve. Uh, had had no expectation of ever being given. And in that setting and in this environment, I felt freer to, I'll, I'll just confess with you, experiment with understandings that I, I, did, I did not have settled understandings about some of these things, but I believe this was a safe place to voice and articulate as best I could at that moment and then rethink it based on feedback or challenge uh, and, and grow out of it. So I suspect my experience is, is more like that of some of you, that you didn't, we, we didn't see the lectures the way you did. Mm, I think it can be better. I think we want to go away from themes to books. I think 
committee to, and I think, <laughs> we, we, I, I never had that perspective. But to have been allowed to come, uh, to, to benefit from hearing, and, and in, in my case, and again, for reasons I don't know, and I'm about to find out, uh, if you can tell, um, to, to know why some of us were, were allowed to, to wrestle with some of the things we did. So, Jerry, why did you invite me that first time back in 1983? And, and what degree of risk did you sense in asking a, 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 a very conservative, mentored at Fried Hardeman at, at the right hand of Tom Warren? Uh, and is there a particular event in your home that involved Lynn Anderson and me that is in your memory that you would share? I think the first time I actually physically was in the same location with Rupal, and I've never told him this, I was on the uh, Yosemite family encampment. This would have been the end of July 1981. I'm there with my wife, Lori. Um, we were staying at the lodge. And I can't believe down at the other end of the hall is Rubel Shelley, who for all I know at that moment is a right-wing hawk uh, from Fried Hardeman, who if I'm not careful, he'll write me up. <laughs> and as we walked down the hall and I saw him, we came to our room. Lori would attest to this. I pushed her into the room and she said, what are you doing? And I ran in after her and shut the door. And I said, I just saw Rubel Shelley. And she said, who is that? And I said, well, you don't need to know. But if I mess up this week, he'll tell the whole country. So that was the image I had of Rubel, is that uh, he, he was just somebody that I didn't particularly want to have a conversation with. You all know this is the situation. Two years later, I'm inviting him to be an opening night speaker. So what changed? He wrote a book, I Just Want to Be a Christian. That was a game changer. I don't know how many in here would say it was a game changer for their life, but we had not had a volume like that. I Just Want to Be a Christian. It cut through all of the background that he had growing up in Tennessee, my background in Northeast Arkansas, his parents, my parents, his training, my training. I just want to be a Christian. It was such a breath of fresh air. And as I laid out those seven speakers, I chose Landon Saunders, who picked me up at the bus station in Corning, Arkansas, when I rolled in in 1963 and had been my mentor. And I picked Lynn, who I knew, because I had stayed up all night with him stuffing envelopes so he could send them to Canada for some campaign he was going on. Um, I went through and, and I picked people that I was comfortable, and I, so I chose Rubel and Lynn, and I thought that all of these people that speak everywhere know each other and have camaraderie. And on the opening night, I brought 20, 25 people to our home where we still live at 19 Oakley, and I was nervous. We had just had opening night with Gary Beecham, and it was on Titus, and um, here was this group, and I said, well, tell me how it went. What do you think about the theme? Was the singing good tonight? I don't know what all I was asking. And everybody was chiming in, and all of a sudden, Rubel, to my left from where I was sitting, said, Jerry, excuse me, I need to say something. It sounded very serious. And he said, looking across the circle, we were all seated, he said to Lynn Anderson, Lynn, I owe you an apology. I want to apologize. And he starts to apologize that he had been hard on Lynn when Lynn came to Fried Hardeman for some program, and boy, he had really given him a tough time. But the moment he said that, Lynn then jumped up from his chair over here, and as soon as Rubel said, I want to apologize, Lynn is only Lynn. Lynn saunters over there to Rubel, and he doesn't even let him finish the apology. He saunters over there and throws both his arms around him. And I'm looking at this reconciliation in my living room, which is why at the end of my 30 years, when somebody said to me, well, you did it for 30 years. What was the greatest moment? And I said, you know, you're not going to believe this, but it happened on the opening night of the first year in my living room. It never got better than that. Two of the giants in our fellowship that I thought were friends reconciled 
in the middle of my living room. And uh, they were the only two of the seven that stayed with me for the next 30 years. Landon came in and out. He would come whenever I invited him, but he didn't come on his own. These guys came if they had something to do or not. So that's why you were on the first night. You wrote, I just want to be a Christian. But I had no idea you and Lynn were at odds at all. That was new to me. You can't imagine how embarrassing it is for me to hear Jerry relate that. And, uh, I mean, it, it's just, Jerry's an historian, and he's telling the history. Um, in order to understand what Pepperdine means to me, I think you need to understand a little bit, though, of where I do come from. And the reason for that is, I think, and I've had several people tell me this, and the first few people that told me, I said, no, no, no. But I, I think I hear this now correctly. I've had a number of people tell me, and a couple of them are historians. Uh, Rubel, I think your spiritual struggle and wrestling and, and public sort of um, repositioning yourself from the really far right to the just right position, no, from the really <laughs> far right to wh wherever you're headed. And I, I, I couldn't have said this, I mean, at that point. I, I was reared, I mean, you had to have all the answers fixed and, and on a three by five card, and they, they had to all fit. But I, I, was, I was reared in an environment where all the answers were set and fixed, and to challenge it was, I mean, it was fearful to the degree of going to hell. So what, what these two or three people, or several people actually have said to me, I think maybe your, your struggle, your evolution, your journey has been sort of a microcosm of our fellowship over a, a, a period of years. Um, I, I think the reason I resisted even hearing that um, is I, I don't think I'm special at all. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not really that smart. Um, certainly, of course, I'm really good looking, but I, I'm, not, I'm not that smart. I'm, I'm ugly. I, I, can, I can be so arrogant and, and caustic. Um, but Pepperdine has been a big part of life transformation for me. I mean, and, and that was God's work, not, not Jerry's work, but Jerry's been God in, God's instrument to a major degree in, in giving me the opportunity to, to rethink a lot of things. Um, I, I grew up in a small West Tennessee town, uh, population 476. Uh, population's 1,000 now, but only because they've moved the city limits. Um, <laughs> some wonderful, wonderful people in that little town. Um, wonderful, wonderful people in the little Church of Christ I grew up there. Um, but we, we lived in an orbit uh, in Middleton, Tennessee, of a, a theological perspective, extreme right wing of Churches of Christ. Uh, everything was dominated by the college that I would attend, Fried Hardeman. I mean, every doctrinal position was checked by what came out, of, especially the Open Forum and, and Brother Woods, Guy Woods. And I know at least the last couple of years in high school, my mother and dad let me skip going to school the week of the lectureship. I went there and absorbed like a sponge. And the open forum, I thought, was just a spiritual highlight because there you got the definitive answer. And if any de demurring voice happened to be heard, it would be in a way that I admired stifled, the answer would be, the true answer would be given, the person would be kneecapped, and that would be done. Um, I, I thought that was God's business. I thought that was the way to, to preach the gospel, and to, I thought that's what the gospel was. I thought the gospel, number one, was a moralism as opposed to a message, that it was a performance 
set of standards rather than a message about what God has done by grace. I, 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 didn't, I, I knew nothing about grace growing up, and that, that's, that's not rhetoric and exaggeration, just never heard the topic. Uh, the only time it was ever discussed was that, that the Baptists are wrong about grace, and, and now why they were wrong about grace. I started preaching when I was 13, and full-time at the age of 14. And I guess with the insecurity of being an immature 14, 15, 16 year old, what I had heard and absorbed is what I said. And I'm arrogant. And if I said it, I couldn't, I couldn't back down from it. Because if you back down from it, that means you've been wrong. You can't be wrong in the environment in which I was reared. To be wrong is to be damned. There's no grace. It is the rightness that is the ground of salvation. I literally remember, and I'm embarrassed to say this, just as I'm embarrassed for, and, and I, I thought it would be something of Jerry's answer, but it, it's so embarrassing to do this. Um, I, I grew up in that environment where rightness was everything. But no sinner is right. So when a sinner sets out to prove his rightness, the sinner is arrogant. He is hateful. He is dismissive. He is disregarding. He is disrespectful. Um, so I went from Middleton High School to Freed Hardeman because that, 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 is, that was the, the one sound school. <coughs> I was a junior college at the time with a third year program for Bible majors, and it was repeatedly said, both in class and from chapel, uh, chapel speeches where I remember it. The third year program at Freed Hardeman is the equivalent of a master's degree from anybody's college or university in theological training, and when you finish that program, you, you, you don't need, and, and I don't know that they ever said you, you shouldn't seek, but the implication is you, you shouldn't go and be corrupted uh, with, with graduate work. I continued developing the, 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 the mindset. And then um, Thomas Warren, who became a friend, a mentor, was so good to me in so many ways. He became um, uh, just my personal ideal of, of what it was to have a sharp mind, a steel trap mind, to be quick of tongue, to use logic, uh, to, to formulate invincible arguments, and to have knockdown responses after you've anticipated every response that someone might possibly make to the truth you've presented. And I love Brother Warren. Um, still value so many things about my association with him. About five years ago, I spent um, a Saturday afternoon with his two surviving children. Um, we had the longest talk uh, about Tom and Faye and my experience with them. Um, Brother Warren had to, be, had to dismiss me as um, uh, someone that he, he favored or had confidence in. I understood that. I, I, I knew where that was coming from. I knew that it would come. Um, but I never lost respect for him. Never, never said one unkind word about him, have no unkind word to say about him. Um, but there, was a, there were a couple of revolutionary moments in my life that made Pepperdine the right place at the right time. Um, having been trained the way I was and having grown up with the mindset that I, I had, I am serving my first church, went to Freed Hardeman in 1963 to 66, and then did, in fact, go one more year to Harding to finish an undergraduate degree. And having finished that, Myra and I moved to New Albany, Mississippi in uh, late summer, early fall of that year, 1967. And we're there 
until the spring of 1968. And some of you would recall the 50th anniversary just passed. I spent that first approximately a year uh, at New Albany preaching everything that I knew. And Martin Luther King was assassinated 70 miles down the road in Memphis in April of 1968 on a Thursday. I don't know what I planned to preach that Sunday morning, um, but I preached on racism on that Sunday morning. And a special elders meeting was called for Monday night at 7, and I was to be there. What I said was fairly tame uh, that Sunday morning after referencing what had happened in the last several hours, riots and the burning, Memphis, Baltimore, other places around the country. Basically camped at, at Acts and Galatians, that the early church had the same problem we have not yet dealt with successfully. For them, it was Jew and Gentile. For us, in, at least in the American South, it's black and white. And that until we were willing to address the issue as boldly as they did, to say that in Christ there can't be Jew or Gentile, and say in Christ there can't be black and white, we're not attempting to be that church, much less can we claim to be part of a restoration of that church and that I would never again halt at the line that I had told we observed about inviting people to VBS or the gospel meetings of the New Albany Church of Christ. At that meeting, um, six men were in the room. I was sitting at the end of the table, two here, one here, three at the very far end. These three knew that what I'd said was right, but were utterly spineless, never said a word. Mm. These three led the conversation and they gave me the option of repenting and apologizing for what I'd said the day before or leaving. And I said, I will repent and I will apologize if you can show me from this book that what I said is untrue. Um, it came to a head when the gentleman sitting here shook his finger in my face and said, quote, we had one child our daughter, three years old, Michelle, quote, do you mean to tell me you'd want your precious little girl to grow up and marry a big, burly African-American? But he didn't say African-American. Close quote. To which I responded, Brother Blank, I'd rather she grow up and marry a black man who's a Christian than a white man with a heart like yours. Close quote. So John, I've told John this story before. Um, and I've said to John, I don't know if it was the sermon or that response that got me fired. Um, but that's the only time I've been fired yet. Um, but it was over that. And Myra and I decided I can't, I will never be able to do. And everything, everything that had been my house of cards, of my theology tumbled down that night. If, if, it, is, if it is in the Bible as clear as this is said in scripture, and if I cannot preach that from the pulpit, what can I preach? I didn't understand the gospel at that time, but if the gospel does not entail human dignity, if the gospel does not entail the affirmation of fellow human beings, I, I can't do this. And Myra and I, as we loaded up, I mean, no, <laughs> no more paychecks, no more house to live in to, to, to get out of town, not in the middle of the night, but, but pretty quickly just in a truck that my dad used to haul cattle in. Um, I knew that I could not do church ministry. And so I set about to do a doctorate in history at the University of Tennessee. And I was granted a five-year um, period of time within which to do that with a full ride and a stipend. And long, long story short, decided not to do history but to do philosophy. And am grateful I would not be in Christian ministry. Uh, I, I, I went back to school to get academic credentialing so I could teach at a non-Christian school 
and be a Christian. I wasn't going to give up being a Christian. But I, I can't do institutional church. I can't do church. I can't pre. I can't be Church of Christ preacher. Because everything that I knew that was that, it just it fell apart for me in, in that event. And so I wrestled with it for 10, 12, 15 years. And finally produced this book and had it in second draft when my father died. My father lived three and a half weeks from the day that he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and never left the hospital, um, Methodist Hospital in Memphis. Um, at that point, was living in Nashville and had this book trying to pull together what I thought it became the book, I Just Want to Be a Christian. It was in second draft. I still have that second draft version of it. And in the last 10 days of his life, Daddy would be fairly strong for about three hours in the morning, would fade pretty quickly in the afternoon, sleep a lot. I said, Daddy, I'm working on a book, and I'd, I'd really like to walk you through the book. And so over two or three mornings, I didn't just read it page by page, but I went through every, every idea in the book. And after, let's say it was three days that we finished, I said, Daddy, what do you think? My dad was my ideal of a Christian gentleman. And I will say now what I wanted to, made a mental note to be sure to say later. Growing up in the environment that I did, my mom and dad always bothered me a little bit. They were liberal compared to the kind of preaching we were hearing in our church, and especially from the gospel meeting preachers and from the open forum. Um, and you'll find out why they were liberal in just a moment in my thinking at that time. And it, and it bothered me. I worried about them. That book is, is a poor book. <laughs> uh, I've had a lot of people say, oh, that book. I hear from that book constantly. Um, I've had a lot of people say it helped me. I, I, I get it w with this much perspective on it now, this many years later. It was a legalist thinking his way out of legalism. Mm. <clears throat> And so it used the language of legalism and the methodology of legalism to say legalism is false. Now, that was, the only, that was the only intellectual structure that I had available to me at the time to think through what I had been taught, what I had parroted, and what I knew, though, didn't work in the real world and put people in impossible situations where they couldn't be saved if they'd been divorced, and they couldn't be saved if they didn't know how to parse baptism, and if they, they didn't know that asophis and hamartion means in order to obtain, not because somehow it's God's gift to me already. Um, the frequency of the Lord's Supper, you know, in congregational independence, it, it, it all had to be there, and it was that house of cards. If any one part of it falls, the part that fell first for me was just that really critical, essential part of human dignity about civil rights. Particular black lady, important in my life because I called her my second mother even back then, Odessa Porterfield. She, I was a very sickly child. She and my mother took 24-hour shifts sleeping and taking care of me. I remember hands on my back when I, you know, temperature 104, 105, hand lightly on my back to make sure I'm still breathing. I love this woman. And one of those hard-nosed preachers who stayed in our home during the gospel meeting, he was going to lead her to Christ. I don't know where he would have left her in church. I mean, she was a deaconess in the Baptist church. <laughs> and after conversation with her one day, he, uh, he told my mother and me, that African-American, but he didn't say African-American. That African-American's a Christian. She knows the gospel. Um, I want to leave that one right where it is because that person later has talked about what a close friend he is of my mom and my dad and how he knows how disappointed they are in me because he loved them, knew them so well, and they loved him. That's a lie, uh, but we'll let that lie. lie. Um, the house of cards had collapsed, and at that point, I'm, in order for me to think through anything, I have to be able to write it down. I, that's why I write stuff. I'm always trying to figure something out. And so that book was published, 
It is a legalist thinking is way out of legalism, and I think it probably did help some people because it used the, langu the only language they knew to think through. All of us smelled a rat. We, we, we knew this didn't work. I mean, if this were true, people ought to be flocking to it. Our children shouldn't be exiting from it, and our churches shouldn't be dwindling down. Um, so in 1982, 1983, 1984, 1985, you'll never know what formative years those were for me. And so my Pepperdine experience was, has been this for me. It was struggling for theological clarity. And here's what I mean. Jerry, and, and Jerry has mentioned Landon Saunders, Lynn Anderson, and me. We were 10 years apart at Free Darby. Mm. And we have talked with each other. Lynn brought it up. He said, can you believe that 10 years separates those of us who are not welcome on the campus anymore? How did we wind up where we are, all starting where we did? And here was the answer collectively we, we, we've come up with. We took seriously the rhetoric we were taught. I got good training there. Um, high view of scripture, high view of the local church, the importance of study, original languages and, and trying to articulate things in, in a precise way theologically. So for me, Pepperdine was a, a place where I, I could live the rhetoric that I couldn't in the environment where I grew up. I was first called a liberal after that 1968 um, episode when I said things about racism and black people ought to be welcome in white southern churches. You liberal. I remember being pilloried at a, a lectureship as a liberal because of my views on civil rights. Uh, and it was the start. But the, 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 the rhetoric, I still, I still believe the rhetoric of the Restoration Movement. Jesus Christ, our polar star. Um, no, no creed but, not scripture. No creed but Christ. Um, it, it's actually a mistake to say the final authority in, in, in religion is, is the Holy Bible. Jesus said all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. The final authority is Jesus. Scripture bears witness to him. Scripture reports him. We, we have to, at our place and time, live out the storyline that we see Jesus teaching and living in our own time and place. And we don't, we, don't have, we don't have a rigid pattern. If we've got a pattern, my wife's a seamstress. It's like the pattern my wife has. She can take the same pattern and for our seven granddaughters make dresses, no two of which look alike. But it's the same pattern, the same basic structure, same basic structure of the affirmation of Jesus. I think our rhetoric is meaningful, and I believe I'm faithful to things that mentors of mine who became embarrassed by me and who repudiated me. I, I still value what they taught me. I think the rhetoric's meaningful. And I was struggling to determine, can I stay in this fellowship? I've had lots of invitations to leave Churches of Christ, some by people outside. You'll get that when you think about it. <laughs> um, but I, I, I do believe that part of our rhetoric is n nobody can either effectively assign me an end status or excommunicate me from it. We, we, are, we are a collection of free churches, <coughs> autonomous churches. And in a place, and I was fortunate enough for 27 years to be able to preach in a place where you could ask these questions out loud and where we could and, and get it wrong and show each other grace when we got it wrong and say, oh, that wasn't the right way to go with that, was it? Let's back up and redo that. I'm still doing that. Um, doing that with the elders of the church I'm with now, and we're, we're studying a particular issue. So I said I'll prepare three or four page paper. It's 19 pages, single space that we're working through now. But, yeah, but I mean, in order for me to understand it, I have to be able to write it down. And I want to get it more succinct than 19 pages, but I'm working on it. Um, do, do I belong in this fellowship? Yes. And, and you, you should not not belong in the fellowship because you don't parrot the received traditions because the rhetoric says you don't have to parrot the received traditions. The rhetoric says all you have to do is love Jesus and be faithful to Scripture to the best of your ability. Declaration and address says if, there, if there's a command, if there's a precedent, that's good. We ought to, 
but, but beyond that, with, with the inferences we draw and the reasonings we do from those things, we have to cut the greatest latitude for one another. Yeah, we haven't done it. Haven't lived up to the rhetoric. I still want to live up to the rhetoric, live into the rhetoric. And then Pepperdine was, for me, a safe place for grappling with those issues that tormented me. Um, is Odessa really a Christian, though she's a Baptist? I love this woman. By the way, I preached her funeral at 105 and a half. When I moved to Michigan and was at, at Rochester College, she had long since, uh, because of health, had to move to Romulus, Michigan, which is right down by the airport, if you know Detroit at all. And so I'm living in Michigan, and I go by, and I, I would visit with Desi, and Myra and I go, and her mind is so sharp up until just before she died, part of hearing. Myra said, Desi, I've used your recipe for spaghetti that Ruble loved and bragged. I said, mine's never as good as yours. Why is yours so much better? I made mine with lots of love. Um, this woman loved Jesus and if she wasn't at a church of Christ in Middleton it was because the church of Christ wouldn't let her in the door um, th those things matter to me they mattered to me at a, level, at a level I didn't realize they mattered to me I was, I, I was reared and educated in the early stages of education to believe that what matters is getting the answers right and, and the right answers we have here, so learn them and, and, and articulate them and defend them if anybody challenges them. I'm, I'm really glad I studied philosophy because I had to read Plato and Aristotle in Greek and that helped me a whole lot to, to have a lot more freedom to, to read the New Testament. But it gave me a methodology and the methodology is a very Socratic methodology to say, if this is your best understanding today, don't be satisfied with it tomorrow. Everything is still open to investigation, everything's open to study. And the embarrassment is not to occasionally change your mind because you're not thinking. If you're not seeing some things that you didn't see when you were more immature than you are at this point. So my Pepperdine experience was it was it was struggling for theological clarity, it was struggling to figure out personal stuff. And Pepperdine was my safe place. So what Pepperdine was for me in those, in those first three years, in 1985. Well, wait a minute, Rubel, yeah. surely you're not going to stop in without me getting half my say here. Okay, everybody, I went through the same thing right that Lula did. I came in, what, 60? I started in 63. Rubel's in 63. He's been doing this to me for the whole time. He always talks up here, and I never have been able to speak like this. There's one thing. You know, I went to the 63, 53 years. Still, you did the math. 53 years. In 53 years, I have still been able to outdress Rubel every time. Look at this here. Yeah, look at this. Look at uh, that's Rubel. not an issue, John. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Rubel. He was an alpha tall. Can, I was can, you not, can you not ever find something other than blue? And it's the same thing with York. York look here. Here's what I call He's the guy that I call the smiling scholar. And we got others that are not smiling, you understand. But he is the smiling scholar. Let me tell you this. Uh, I'm John Parker. I got to Freedheart, and you mind? I'm going to eat on your time here. Later. I've, okay, I've got you, you owe nine me. minutes left. Take okay, a couple. You okay, but you owe me about 40 years there. <laughs> we'll claim it privately. Go ahead with the okay. two. I got there in 64. And Rubel was, he was the right hand man of Thomas Warren, one of the great scholars up here. But while he was the right hand man, I was the left hand man of Thomas Warren, right? <laughs> okay, and so uh, we had all this, this time together. And I, have, I really enjoyed that here. I'm John Parker, and I am your friendly conservative. Nobody's laughing here, brother. I am your friendly conservative, okay? 
I got to, uh, I went through the same period that, that, that almost experiences that, that, that rule did. I went to pre-hard the same years. He was always smart. He can always talk better. Well, let me finish up my lectures here, John, and we'll we'll pick this up over breakfast. I need to I need to walk through these slides that Jerry has given me. John and I were at Freed together. We overlapped for two years, and worst thing I can say about him is that he was an alphatol. But you know, other than that, John's a smart guy, and he's a he's a Shakespeare scholar. I began uh, getting to speak here back in '83. And Jerry invited me to do that keynote lecture. And the one thing I remember about the lecture that I did out of Titus, and it was formative that night, I made the distinction out of Titus between error and heresy, between being wrong and being outside the purview of God's grace. It's a, it's a distinction I still think is important for us to make. A person can be wrong about countless things and still be centered to the heart of God. A person can be wrong about countless things and still be a faithful child of God. Heresy is something that fundamentally smacks at the heart of the gospel. Most of the things that divide churches are not heretical ideas. They are peripheral ideas. And if you think in terms of a bullseye, with the cross in the middle bullseye, the gospel, the second ring around that is what I would call our, our personal convictions that we've derived from our best understanding of Scripture. I'd put in the third circle our denominational distinctives, uh, the ideas of the impossibility of apostasy versus the possibility of apostasy. Do I have a conviction on that? Yes. Am I right? Absolutely. But is somebody who disagrees with me and is, I believe, wrong about that heretical? No. I can make a case, too. Um, but that, that, that's a distinction that I made and that, and that Lynn and I were able to address further. Lynn and I had been at odds because of the camp. I, I grew up in that contending for the faith camp. I didn't know you were a student of Tom Warren's. I, I, I really didn't. But I, I grew up in, in the, under the influence of, of Guy Woods, uh, Ira Rice, Tom Warren, men for whom I, I respect the conclusions they drew, but they're not the conclusions that I think are sustainable, not the conclusions that I've reached at this point in my life. And I articulated one of them that night in a way that was helpful to me. And Lynn affirmed, and that began a conversation with us. And I don't know if we had that conversation before or after that moment in your house, but that was a moment in your house that was transformational to my life. And Lynn's grace, Lynn's kindness, so typical of Lynn. Uh, we, are, we have been dear friends. It's not that we've hated each other before, but I mean, we, we were just, we were out of different camps. And so it, it, he could affirm me, but I couldn't affirm him, not, not given my starting point. But I came to understand that believing somebody is wrong about something and believing somebody is heretical, uh, wrong to the point of being perhaps even lost a distinction that I made there for the first time in my head publicly. 64, I was not here. I'm like Jerry. I don't remember why. I think it was because I was traveling in Russia. I traveled in Russia, I think, 19 times during that period of time, coordinating some relief at a children's hospital uh, for started with our church and became the city of Nashville. I think compassion, uh, caring about people who are excluded, civil rights, women, children in Moscow. I think that's one of those things that, that made me increasingly uncomfortable with rigid intellectual categories that basically said most of them don't really count. That couldn't be of God. And so, I mean, I, I think I backed into an intellectual understanding out of something that the Holy Spirit was doing in my heart, though I was taught the Holy Spirit wasn't in me. Um, you know, when I was reared under Guy Woods and that influence. So in 85, I spoke here for the first time and did a class, and the class was around that book, I Just Want to Be a Christian. And that book, I, I'm not sure the book was really introduced here. The book had probably already uh, been published shortly before that, maybe several months before that. Uh, 
but that, that book sort of became my defining moment at Pepperdine for people who, who knew me as um, a right-wing ideologue to say, well, maybe he's not a right-wing uh, ideologue. Uh, maybe he's just been wrong about some things, and, and maybe, maybe, he's, maybe he's trying to grow up. 86, I followed that in 86. Uh, while the theme was Isaiah by doing a series on fellowship and made a distinction that some of my critics just love to pillory to this day between a capital F and a lowercase f fellowship. I, still helpful to me as a shorthand. Capital F fellowship is the fellowship that I can affirm that I and others have with God. Lowercase fellowship is, I agree with you on that. Yeah, I, 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 I support that understanding of that view. I can have one without the other. I can, I can affirm somebody as a Christian, my brother in Christ, and still say, but I disagree with you, John. Um, John and I used to preach together in, in dialogue sermons, and every once in a while, about, about every three or four months, he'd say, let, let's, let's throw something in here that we disagree on. And I'd say, yeah, let's do that, and model for the church that, that two people that are, that are the lead teachers in this congregation can say to each other, well, John, here's why I think you're wrong about that. And John would say, now, I know you think I'm wrong about that, but here's why I think I'm right about it. Because so, And folks out here, first two, three, two, three times we did it, they probably breathed hard and some blood pressures went up. I wouldn't cause them strokes. But I think we did the church a real service. They said, what if they can? It's okay for me to say, I, you know, I disagree with them. Or, or I, I disagree with my Sunday school teacher. Or, um, it was good. 87, from Athens to Jerusalem. I finished up my doctorate in philosophy at that point. Philosophical questions and Christian answers. I don't remember what questions I raised that year. In 88, um, 88 uh, as soon as I finished my doctorate at Vanderbilt, I was asked to teach at the medical school. And I taught medical ethics, and that became my teaching specialty for years. And I taught at the med school, and so in 88, since I'm working on it and preparing lectures for school, I double dipped. And I, I did um, some questions out of medical ethics. I'm sure I did end of life issues and some things like that. 89, I did the one that might have been sort of a looking back um, on my own life. Doing the book, book of Exodus, I titled my class in the wilderness. And the wilderness was the wilderness of, of personal struggle, theological struggle, psychological, emotional struggle, spiritual struggle. 90, if Jesus were a church. 91, restoring the gospel of Christ crucified. About 1991, I think I began to understand what the gospel was, that it's not a moral lesson that you have to measure up to. It is the good news of what God has done through Christ, and in particular, the empowerment of the resurrection and what we have to look forward to based on that. The good news is what has happened here has changed everything, and this is going to end right. Uh, quickly, um, where am I? 92, can the Church of Christ survive the 90s? And I allowed yes, no, and maybe. <laughs> uh, yes, if it, if it captures the spirit of what the church was meant to be, no, if it continues the path that we have embraced since 1930, maybe. It all depends on what we are willing to do by way of some repentance and changing of heart and practice. 93, I want to know Christ. 94, seven habits of highly effective churches. Uh, 95, written in stone, ethics for the heart. 96, the gift of a difficult life. 97, come on in, the water's fine. Healthier theology of baptism. The only time I think Jerry was really dissatisfied with my class. Um, but uh, this is a letter I wrote, Jerry. I don't want to end with this. Dear Jerry, dated October 12, 2011. With the formal announcement of the change of directorship yesterday, I was prompted to think back over these years of association with you. You will never understand how important you've been in my life and how indebted I feel to you. I was reared in such a tiny, narrow slice of our fellowship of people. As education and experience began opening a door for me, you swung it wide open. Your kindness to invite me to speak at Pepperdine that first time so many years ago put me in touch with people I needed to know, needed to hear, and needed to experience in the fellowship of Christ's love. 
I honestly cannot imagine the venue that would have made that possible outside your invitation. Your heart is deeply committed to our fellowship and both of us love our heritage. Flawed as it may be, it's part of the larger human experience of being unable to do divine work through human personality without the humanity being revealed. Every religious tradition has the same problem. Ours is no exception. Your work at Pepperdine has done so much to give our people a safe environment for dialogue. For the slings and arrows you've taken from some who have not understood the role, others of us speak your name respectfully and gratefully. I love you, dear brother, and congratulate you on a unique task superbly performed. Many lectureship directors have served well and virtuously, but thou hast excelled them all. It is an honor to be numbered among the many who have been blessed by you. Father, I do thank you for the Pepperdine lectures over the years, uh, the pre-Jerry years. We all stand on the shoulders of whatever has gone before, but particularly for the Jerry years and for his kindness to so many of us, reaching out to different geographic areas, to different theological strains, drawing us together in an environment where we could hear each other, look each other in the face, and if not seeing each other eye to eye, still see deeply enough into each other's hearts that we would understand that the love of Christ and the grace that you've extended to us through him is so much greater than our ability to come to agreement on every issue we can name. I thank you that Jerry has been your man in your place doing your thing so well. And I pray for Mike as he's taken that mantle up, and I pray for the school to continue making this annual contribution that endures far beyond um, lectureship week for all the things that it uh, allows us to wrestle with, think about, um, experiment with, and may yours be the glory forever and ever through Christ. Amen. Amen. Our time is up, right? Uh, yeah, I hadn't even looked. Uh, I'll make one point that I had said you wrote uh, I just want to be a Christian and that was and I can't remember the exact moment that came out but I knew when I was picking my seven speakers people that I was asking advice from said Rubel is not who he was he's, he's been in a PhD program at Vanderbilt he's and, and you, need, you need to consider him. And so I don't remember if, if I had read I Just Want to Be a Christian or I knew you were working on that document. still actually in final. Working on it. But that was the framework in which I... And what yeah. text did I give you in Titus? Do you remember? I don't... I mean, it's in, that, it's in the know. book, but it's, it's been too long ago. Yeah. Rick will pick up the thread. Uh, Rick, do you want to say anything about tomorrow? No, other than I need to start all over again. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, uh, I'll bring a little bit of uh, context of some of what I understand was happening at Pepperdine at the time that I think will be interesting to this group. Well, we'll start at 3.15 tomorrow, and we hope you can all come back. And let's thank Rubel for a wonderful <laughs>